Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Michael Innes, who is uh, someone I've worked with in the past and known for a long time. And I specifically wanted to talk to Mike about some research that he's done over the past few years, or actually many years now, um, which he's distilled into a book that's just been published this year called Streets Without Joy. And the topic I want to talk about is this idea of sanctuary or safe havens. And that is something that is very topical right now with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. And we are hearing these terms again in the news on a daily basis. So Mike's research is is incredibly timely in terms of considering where this concept came from. So Mike, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. It'd be great to talk to you about the, these concepts. But first, it'd be great to get some of your background as well and understand how you got to where you are now and how you came about researching this topic. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Thanks for for having me on and and for doing this. Um, I'm currently I, I have a couple of different roles. I wear different hats. Um, and that's actually the story of my career, I guess. I currently work for the UN, so it's important to mention that uh, that everything we're talking about is a, is a reflection of my personal interests and and research that I've been doing for quite a long time. But I also have a, an academic hat. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow with the Department of War Studies at King's College London in the Sir Michael Howard Center for the History of War, where we have a, a conflict records unit that that I set up, and I direct that uh, as well, sort of as a as a side project. My background includes quite quite a few years of uh, consultative research for, for government, focusing on strategic issues, uh, dealing with classic sort of geopolitical and, and military kind of issues, as well as, you know, some of the problems of, of insurgency and counterinsurgency and terrorism and counterterrorism that we've, that, that have been sort of, you know, at, at the forefront of, of all of those issues, especially after, you know, 9-11, just a little bit more than 20 years ago. I spent about six and a half years working for NATO in the Balkans and in Belgium with some side missions to uh, Kosovo and Afghanistan along the way. And I guess I can talk a little bit about the book as well, but I, I don't know if you have some specific questions you want to you want to lead with or uh, yeah, to sort do. of segue I actually into that. Do. Um, yeah. And uh, thanks for the, the introduction, Mike. I think it's yeah really useful to get an understanding of your background. And I kind of actually want to start off talking about how you hit upon the question that is the key to this book, you know, the concept of sanctuary and safe havens, which we started to hear a lot about post 9-11. And, you know, as you relay in the book, I think I think actually what I should say is as well, I sort of looked at the book and um, I'll be honest with you, I, I thought this is going to be a hard read <laughs> because <laughs> I looked at the title Streets Without Joy and I thought, wow, that's a little depressing. But then also I thought, you know, there's going to, and I know you've put a huge amount of work into this and I know that there's some real intellectual rigor gone into the academic aspects of this book. So I was thinking, oh, I wonder if it's going to be too academic. But I was really pleased that actually you started off by really drawing drawing me in as I was reading it by relaying the the kind of anecdotes that you started off with, um, being on the on the tarmac in Banja Luka uh, and seeing uh, Saeed Atmani. And we can maybe uh, talk a little bit about that case as an example. But But then you talk about your role in Sarajevo and that routine you were working through of you know being in an analytical role which I'm sure will be very familiar to a lot of the people listening to this podcast a lot of the people I talk to and people I've trained over the years where 
you know, you're sitting there day in, day out, analyzing information that comes across your desk, whether it's open source information or information from other types of sources, and trying to make sense of it, you know, trying to pick out what it, what is going on, what does this mean? But it's always in the within the frame of the intelligence requirements that you're working to, whether those are ad hoc requirements or standing requirements. And I guess for you at that point, and uh, I think I'm right in saying that was in 2003, this was in the shadow of uh, the post 9-11 policy making decisions that had taken place, et cetera, everything that flowed down from that. The, and the intelligence requirements were really shaped by this idea of sanctuaries and safe havens where terrorist groups, militants, extremists would be able to prepare themselves, arm themselves plan and and be able to conduct the types of attacks we saw on on 9/11. Yeah, that's 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 a, a really great setup Terry. Um the the story that I used to tell and I guess it got old after a while because I had spent so long sort of looking into this before actually writing the book, you know, is that working as an analyst in in a NATO environment and working in a place, you know, that was not Afghanistan and not Iraq in the first few years after 9/11 and being asked, you know, this kind of question um, is Bosnia a terrorist safe haven or is Bosnia a, a, a terrorist sanctuary? And if you were an analyst assigned to the Balkans at the time, you know, extremism and terrorism was not a new kind of question, but the kind of extremism and terrorism that was being asked about was new and, and not really consistent with, you know, the realities of, of life in the Balkans. Not, it, it wasn't of a scale or, or wasn't as important as, as it was being made out to be. And when I was being asked that question, my, of course, being, you know, being an analyst and, and, and sort of having that predilection for splitting hairs and, and, and wanting to actually get it, you know, where's this question coming from? You know, why, why am I being asked this question? Why are the people asking this question, asking the questions they are? And it tended to, that language, uh, that, that, those words, sanctuary and safe haven, um, you know, it tended to be tended to come from you know working in a in a NATO environment. You know, at the time it had 26 member states, and it, but it, it tended to be coming from senior U.S. officers, and it tended to come from senior U.S. officers who were often linking what we were doing in the Balkans to what was going on in Afghanistan and Iraq, or trying to make that connection. And I was pretty, I was pretty jaded and cynical myself at the time, thinking, well, you know the. The, the Balkans at the time was kind of a foreign policy backwater, and you know anybody who was looking to make a career in national security, you know, was looking towards Afghanistan and Iraq as you know, that's where the the real game is, and and sort of trying to trying to create equivalencies between what's going on by using this this language that was actually language in common use, you know, in relation to Afghanistan and Iraq, and and so. Um, so I, I raised those kind of kind of questions, and of course that didn't that didn't win me any any fans. It didn't make me any enemies either, but it was healthy to ask that question. And I guess as a side project, since then, um, you know, I, I started looking into what was where where is this language coming from? You know, is there what are we looking at? Are we looking sort of a, a generalized kind of rhetoric amongst you know people who are deployed on operations? If if so, where's that coming from? Is there a bigger discourse around this? And, and where is it coming from? What are the what are the origins? What what's the what's the etymology of the terminology uh, that's being used, and why is it being used, and how it's being used? And you know, one of the doing the classic sort of thing you do as an academic is you do a literature review. And you know, over time, what I was picking up is you know this sort of cottage industry in, in academic journal articles, including some of my own you know work that I published you know 15 years ago. Which would, you know, you, you have to create a justification for doing the research. What is it that that sort of, you know, puts it on, makes it a headline and makes it important to look into. And across the board, 
you know, academics would cite one or another, you know, piece of policy documentation, whether it's a national security estimate or the 9-11 Commission's report or a presidential speech uh, stating, you know, terrorist sanctuaries are important to a major threat and they have to be dealt with. And what was really interesting to, to, to me at the time was they're sort of randomly selected, but when you look at them at the whole, there's this sort of corpus of documents and, and sort of reference material that cites this and and you know taken individually they don't they don't appear out of thin air they're part of a process themselves and so so if you're looking at the u.s system if you're looking at the, you know the national security apparatus in the u.s as a point of origin for developing and, and deploying this kind of talk as a way of setting priorities as a way of deciding where money is spent as a way of you know deciding where troops are going to go to war next um, you know, there's a process that's well understood, at least in terms of, you know, what people can see from the outside that, you know, you know, presidential speech will set the tone, you know, a, a state of the union address will set the tone and then the policy apparatus will sort of take that on board and start operationalizing that, putting it into reports and, and, and sort of, you know, creating subordinate documents and, and, and processes that follow from that. I, I love this idea, though. I love this idea that you're, you're sitting there and you're you're questioning the requirements as they're coming down, but then you've pulled that thread and you've pulled it and pulled it and you've taken it back so far, because I think this is what's really important: is that this idea of sanctuary and safe haven. It didn't just come into being after 9/11. There was this huge weight of of uh, literature and and practice around it, I guess, over the decades within U U.S. administrations going back. As far as you've you've traced it in the book, going back uh, to the to the sort of fifties and sixties, so um, yeah. you know th th that's that's that, that to me is fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's 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 the historian's problem knowing how far back to go and, and where to sort of <laughs> sure. draw the line. So you could keep going back, but one of the things, I mean, if I, I wanted to do a few things, one is I wanted to stay true to the language that was being used after nine eleven. The, the book is a bit pedantic in the sense that it it looks at those words and takes them at their at you know at face value. So why those words, why that terminology? And it stands out as terminology that should be traced because it gets used so, so aggressively and so proactively. And it gets connected to certain historical ideas, right? So Vietnam is, is a really big one. Any talk of Al-Qaeda sanctuaries or Taliban sanctuaries, there's, you know, at some point, there's usually some sort of connection made to, you know, Viet Cong sanctuaries across the border in Laos and Cambodia or, or similar, similar sorts of dynamics in other previous insurgencies. And, and you know, you remember going back 15 years, going a little bit further than that, 2002, three, four, there's this growing interest in, in, in you know, the, the past counterinsurgency, the, the, the counterinsurgency lessons of the past. And, and part of that, you know, involved invoking these historical cases like Vietnam, but also certain um, readings from the past. And, and, and Bernard Fall who is this this fantastic historian and war correspondent who, who died in 1967? Um, you know, he, he was an influential thread in all of that. And and the the book, it's important to to state the the book, my book, Streets Without Joy, is a, is a straight riff on his book published in 1961 called Street Without Joy. And that that book was about the French experience of war in Indochina in the late 40s and up to the the mid uh, 1950s prior to American involvement. And he was cited in the few years after 9/11 as part of this talk of sanctuaries, and 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 there's you know it's the, the academics, practitioners, anybody who's writing about 
uh, counterinsurgency, not, not everybody, but a few sort of key items, would sort of invoke Bernard Fall's work. And they would say, you know, he wrote about this idea of active sanctuary. I was like, okay, if we're, my, my view is if we're gonna, if we're gonna talk about this, we should go back and actually read what he wrote. And what I found really fascinating, I mean, he, he wrote these sort of brilliant military histories that were really evocative and they were written for a popular audience, right? They're solid histories, but they're, they're written for uh, popular audiences. And he did indeed use that terminology, but he used it so equivocally, right? He used it in scare quotes in his own books, right? He was drawing from, you know, the parlance of the time. And so that in turn sort of, you know, triggered another round of investigations like, okay, where's he getting the terminology from? And I was a bit worried for a time this was going to be kind of an, a thread that, that just would keep sort of unraveling and there would be no end to it. But there's some pretty solid context for this. And, and so, you know, you could, you could push it back all the way to the Second World War, but I sort of start with, uh, with you know, war in Korea in the 50s and with the, the Chinese Revolution and, and sort of, you know, other insurgencies and, and civil wars going on at the time. Um, and, and there's a great mass of national security talk in the 50s where ideas of sanctuary, they're not, they're not part of the insurgency and counterinsurgency world. Um, they are much broader. There's discussion of sanctuary issues in relation to nuclear, you know, blast radius and sit around cities and, and yeah. sort of not targeting cities. So they would be sort of exempt from targeting and that, you know, branding those as kind of sanctuaries. And that's something that comes up in the Vietnam experience as well, as reference, you know, if you look in the Pentagon papers to the, the Hanoi sanctuary and the Haiphong sanctuary, and those were, you know, target exemptions for, for U.S. air power. Um, and so there's, these, you know, lots of really fascinating variation in the way the terminology is used. And I thought that was really important, not just to be historically precise and accurate, but also to think in terms of, you know, if certain meanings, if there are different kinds of meanings that attach to that terminology, then, you know, we, we potentially miss a beat if we're not aware of those. And we assume the terminology just means one thing, and then we start employing that. And that was kind of the what I was looking at in the period after 2001, where there was this kind of critical, uncritical, I should say, uh, use of that terminology to justify uh, going after sort of, you know, territorial bases or, or sort of rear areas or remote areas where terrorists are thought to set up bases. And that, you know, that, that logic was, was fine. And, and you can, you know, sort of, sort of take that at face value. But at the time, there was also a lot of talk about how you know, insurgent groups and terrorist groups distribute themselves. You know, these aren't typically uh, massed armies sitting on a piece of territory that they control, working to basically take over a state. That came later. Oh, indeed, right? yeah. And I think yeah. At the t certainly at the time, and it would have been a case of them, you know, as we found subsequently in, in many other situations, terrorists aren't terrorists 100% of the time, quite exactly. often. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly in yeah, places like that. Yeah. But I think I think what's important as well is that in terms of your discussion about the history and the, the background of these, the use of these terms is that for anyone who doesn't remember, I guess at the time there was a huge pivot towards, okay, now we've got to do counterterrorism, we've got to do counterinsurgency. There was kind of a conflation of those two things, yeah. but then also trying to learn from historical examples of insurgencies past. And so I think it's important because all of those that history that does come in again, right after the in the post nine eleven period. Yeah, it's influential. Yeah, no, it absolutely is, and that you know that that's why it was important. I thought it was important in this book to you know get a get a get a fix on where the terminology is coming from, how it's understood, how it's used, um, but and, and as part of that to try to understand 
how the lessons, not, not how the lessons are being learned or unlearned or, or you know, lessons were never you know, learned to begin with and are being learned new, uh, but to try to get a sense of, of you know, what, what it is, what is it about, you know, the current situation, the current situation, of course, evolving over a period of 15 years that I was, that I was looking at this. Um, and, and, and how do you, you know, those, those sort of classical allusions to the war in Vietnam and allowing, you know, the enemy to have sanctuary across the border in a very sort of macro geopolitical sense, you know, how does that influence or shape uh, how how operations are conducted in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example, uh, we know that yeah, you know cross, you, cross border activities. Well, I, I didn't get you know the, the the book focuses on on the decisions around how the discourse is made. So I, I I made a I made a hard separation between drawing the you know drawing out those bigger lessons. Partly because I stopped the book in 2008 2009, and a lot of that while it was understood only really sort of started to kick in after about 2009 with the surge and, you know, AFPAC being conjoined in a sense. A lot of these issues were understood and were being dealt with, but they weren't being sort of uh, foregrounded in a lot of the policy discussion. Um, you know, a, a lot of this comes from the, 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 the very early logic that actually precedes 9-11, uh, at least on the, on the Republican side of the House, was holding, you know, drawing equivalencies between militant groups, you know, terrorists, insurgents, or what have you, and, and the states that host them. Well, there's mm -hmm. tons of research that's been done on, you know, external support to insurgencies or proxy wars, and that those are all sort of variations on the theme. But, but here you have this political attempt, and it's, it's really something that started to take a form that looks a lot more familiar after 9-11 in the mid-'80s with, you know, the, the U.S. attack on Libya around, I think it was in 1986. Um, and there was a, you know, really drawing equivalencies, like if you're hosting terrorists, if you're hosting insurgencies, then you're just as bad and we're coming after you. And that was the sort of framework that, that came out of Washington right after 9-11. It didn't, again, it's one of those things that didn't appear out of thin air. It was something that was percolating in the background. It had been very prominent in the 80s. But what I, what I found for, for anybody who's sort of trying to pick apart this thread and if you're, you're paying attention to, to headline news and if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, the ideas of sanctuary and safe haven aren't just about armed opponents. They're also about, you know, this whole, there's this whole humanitarian side to, to dealing with safe havens or creating safe havens as, as you know, refuge for, you know, populations displaced by war that are being victimized by war. And there's a really interesting um, sheer, I guess, between sanctuaries being this forbidden thing that the enemy uses that we have to, you know, stop or take away, and sanctuaries or safe havens as this thing that we have to provide to protect, you know, victims of core international crimes or what have you. And so there's a really, really interesting tension if you're trying to, you know, follow this this jargon. And when when you're looking at at the world of policymakers, you know, jargon gets gets abused constantly, and it's hard to keep up sometimes because, you know. Um, Policymakers basically use the words they need, and they make them mean what they what they need them to mean at any given moment in time, which is a very cynical mm -hmm. view of things. But if you want to keep track, um, it, it can be it can be quite challenging, but it but it's important, right? Yeah, and there is that element, I guess, and, and you describe it in the book as well in terms of how policymakers need to frame things in order to make them convincing, to get people to buy into them. Which yeah, indeed, yeah, indeed, yeah, you know, part of, accurate, part of accuracy accuracy isn't the point. Yeah. Right. What they're trying to do is, I mean, the, the classic sort of understanding of why why policy how why and how policymakers 
use examples from history or use terminology of certain kinds is that they're, they're doing it for two reasons. Uh, well, for one of two reasons or a bit of both. One is to, so that they can sort of understand this stuff, right? Make sense of it and then do what they need to do. Uh, and the other is to basically, you know, sell an agenda, right? That they use language that they think will resonate with with constituents. Um, sure. And quite often there's there's a bit of both that comes into that. So, yeah. And I mean, through all of the research that you did and, and looking in and, and relating it to your own personal experience and, you know, what you saw and, and worked through um, in Bosnia and, you know, at the end of the book, you talk about going out to Afghanistan. Um, w- what's your sort of view on this use of these concepts? And I guess the nub of that question is really, is it a positive, is it a negative, or is it much more nuanced than that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I well, <laughs> it's a big question, I guess. And I know yeah. it's sort of um, hard to answer in one go, but maybe we could sort of try and unpack that a little bit. I think I end the book on a on a somewhat cynical note. And, and, you know, the kind of cynical note that I just injected a couple of minutes ago, that at the end of the day, it's just words and, and they'll be made to mean the things that, that satisfy current requirements, you know, regardless of historical baggage or, or, or sort of, you know, current realities. And, and that, that, that can be quite challenging and it can be quite frustrating. Um, I think one of the things that, I mean, this is almost a, a side piece to this, but one of the things that, that I found constantly challenging was the sense that if you really wanted to know stuff, you had to be really up close and up front, you know, right, right in the mix. You had to be sort of forward deployed, so to speak. You know, you could be reading books and you could be reading press articles and you could be reading, you know, sort of the the original, you know, the the, the thoughts that are being generated um, in in print and in press by by you know various groups. Um, but but there's always kind of this distance, right? That that sort of separates. Uh, separates analysts from from what they're analyzing, and and one of the things that drove me to you know I was I was drove me to distraction actually, um, you know sitting sitting as an analyst behind a desk behind a computer behind barbed wire, being expected to know what's going on out there right to, to divine enemy intentions or what have you, and that was that was a constant challenge and one of the things that drove me to you know you know uh, get out to Afghanistan as part of my my job in in 2009. But even then, you know, I was I was I was in the field, so to speak. But you know, I was you know at a desk behind a computer screen, you know, behind barbed wire, and I was no more in the field than I would have been if I was, you know, um, back in 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 Casto at the time, or or yeah. any any other Western capital. Yeah, uh, you said you, it was frustrating. I mean, I imagine though, there's a lot of people who've been in that situation where they're thinking, "Huh, I'm in Afghanistan, but I'm not really in Afghanistan." If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, who, who gets to know and, and, and who, you know, what, what knowledge, you know, is, 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 is more credible or has more, has more grounding. I mean, that's a constant sort of debate amongst analysts and practitioners and, you know, different kinds of analysts, whether they're historians or political scientists or area studies or, or cultural specialists or what have you. And that, that too was part of that environment after 9-11. You remember there was this real push for cultural you know, specialists and language specialists and area area specialists um, that 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 you know played into that that whole sort of atmosphere and and you know in bringing it back to the the subject of the book um, is really interesting because all these different sort of disciplines and approaches all had differing slightly differing slightly nuanced views of of um, of this kind of issue and you know by far the the richest sort of streams. Of, of thought on, you know, 
why people or groups use sanctuary or safe haven or they why they seek this out or why they try to deny it to others. I mean, it wasn't in in the terrorism studies literature. It wasn't stuff that was being done, you know, then in direct response to what was going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was stuff that had been around for years dealing with, you know, there's a, a sanctuary movement in the U.S. which has nothing to do with this, uh, with this stuff. And it was very much about faith-based, you know, classic sort of religious uh, provision of sanctuary to people who are fleeing persecution, whether it's individuals or, or groups. But a lot of this emerged in the U.S. as a domestic issue uh, in the 80s uh, and prior to that uh, as well, where, you know, refugees coming across the border would be given uh, refuge in, in the classic sort of, you know, Christian religious sense of this. And, and what I found fascinating about that is it's going on at the same time that these other sort of outward looking foreign policy kind of discussions are happening. And I, to my thinking, bringing it back to, you know, why people would use this kind of language and what, what was, you know, where are they getting it from? I thought it would be really interesting and, and undoubtedly doable to connect people using the foreign policy language about terrorist sanctuaries and, and safe havens who had to maybe deal with, you know, these kind of domestic problems of sanctuary and safe haven or what have you, Can, you know, in relation to refugee refugee movements out of Central America at the time in the 80s coming into the U.S. across the border. And I thought there's a really interesting problem in here. And I don't really deal with it in the book, but I, I sort of, I put those darts on the board, I think. Um, and what I've tried to do, do is, is draw together sort of some of those uh, um, parallel kind of streams of thinking on this stuff. Um, and I think there's a really compelling history yet to be written about, you know, um, how those, how those different, you know, streams work together. And, it, you know, it's, 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 uh, anybody dealing with foreign policy formulation is, 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 you know, aware of, you know, the, the influence of domestic issues on the creation of foreign policy. And that's, that was an area that I thought had really been underdeveloped when talking about, you know, sanctuaries and safe havens in the foreign policy sense of the term. And thinking about it from kind of, I guess, two different perspectives, you know, one from that perspective of your own work and the roles that you were in from 2001, 2003 up to 2009, but then also looking back perhaps with the benefit of historical hindsight, do you think this idea of, you know, framing the counterterrorism problem as one of trying to deny sanctuaries and safe havens to terrorist groups, it, was that useful? Has it been useful? And do you think it's, you know, now that we're hearing it again and again right now in the news every day, is it something else? Is, is it again going to be useful for us or actually is it is it problematic? Does it cause us to think about these issues in a way that isn't actually helpful to solving them? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are big and small questions attached to that. I think, you know, very early on after 9-11, one of the one of the, I guess one of the pivot points was in thinking about, okay, so you know Al Qaeda, a, a network of individuals, and and you know in some places that organization is an organization. You know Al Qaeda had paramilitary sort of formations, guerrilla units, zero uh, five five brigade in Afghanistan that looked like military units, and they sit on pieces of land and then they hold that land. But you also had you know the the sort of dominant thinking at the time was, you know you've got networks in the in the classic sort of terrorist cell sense of the term all over the place. And there's this, you know, idea that was really predominant that, that we're talking about transnational networks that aren't, that aren't occupying territory in the same sort of way. Right. And, and, and policymakers were aware of this at the time and were, you know, understood Al Qaeda at the time in that sort of sense in the late nineties and the early aughts. But, you know, how do you mobilize, you know, a country's military to fight this sort of distributed network? 
And that was that was the challenge right at the beginning. And so part of that drawing equivalencies between, you know, if, if you're an irregular warfare group or a militant group that, you know, that that's, you know, using terrorism or insurgency, you know, if you're going to draw equivalencies between them, that makes it a lot easier to to mobilize in a large scale sort of way. And there was this real appetite to you know deploy forces. Um, conventional forces as well as unconventional forces to to deal with this problem, um, and that was you know that was a real decision point at the time. It's like okay, do you know could they could 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 the you know the decision makers in Washington right after 9/11 could they have gone another way? They absolutely could have, right? They could have privileged, for example, more intelligence, more special operations, less wholesale deployment and occupation, right? And they they clearly got into a lot of trouble. By by choosing the latter route, and so some of this some of this discourse and painting sort of entire states as sanctuaries when really we're just talking about a little piece um, was was part of the problem. And I, I guess the problem isn't with that language; it's just that they it was with the intent, right? And and it, yeah. I think it, it it enabled some of that. But I wouldn't put too much blame on a single word or a couple of words. That's interesting, though. But do you, do you think it contributed to? I think what I think in in the book and you sort of mentioned the response to 9/11 being disproportionate and I think you know as we've sort of seen in the the, the 20 years since it hasn't perhaps had the effect that was behind or was the intent behind it, or, or match the intent behind it rather uh, at the outset of deciding which way to go in terms of uh, whether to use a more selective approach or to go in and try and occupy countries i mean yeah is is the that concept of sanctuary and safe haven was that part of what contributed to that or do you think actually that's conflating two different things entirely i don't i don't i don't think so i i don't there, there wasn't you know i don't think the the obsession was with you know sanctuary terminology or or lessons i don't think there was an obsession with a particular um you know particular war in in history that that was you know looked that looked like you know what 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 uh, the world was looking at right after 911 um I, I i think i think my view is probably a bit more cynical in the sense that you know the policymakers and the people who helped them sort of you know shape the words and shape the ideas to to deal with those problems um they were um, you know, they were faced with a problem and they were looking for language to put that, you know, to, 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 to understand it and to frame it and to express that. And I think that's, that's something that I, that I trace. I mean, there are three chapters in the book where I look at case studies where this is done, um, where there was either critical or uncritical use of that kind of terminology. And in some cases, the terminology isn't even all that prominent, but the logic is still there, right? Uh, and so I think the idea, you know, the, the ideas that animated American policymakers and, and drove sort of you know large-scale occupations um, was already there, right? Uh, mm -hmm. there, was, yeah. there was clearly an, an interest and an intent uh, in going after Iraq. Uh, when exactly that started is is still to this day open for debate. Uh, Afghanistan was was um, was a real target of opportunity uh, and and a different kind of problem, right? Right after 9/11. Um, so so I, I don't think it's the language driving the problem. Uh, initially, I think it's the problem creating an opportunity to develop language around that. But I would say, you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting is when you trace these sort of case studies over time, and the, the real core of the book is from 2001 till late 2008, 
2001 to late 2008, yeah, um, is that the language takes on its 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 own meaning over time and its own meanings because it, it's it's you know made to mean different things at different sort of levels of government, um, at a you know in a strategic sense and then it's sort of operationalized at lower levels, and and um, I think what what was really interesting about this is that as time went on, basically that 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 logic sort of just cemented itself and 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 people would use, sort of use it unquestioningly and thought that it, um, you know, basically was a, you know, sort of one of those things that didn't need to be questioned. And that, that was, you know, one of the case studies is, uh, I, I look at the 9-11 the Commission, which is this, you know, for, for a lot of, you know, younger students now and, 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 and younger analysts now, this is kind of ancient history and abstract stuff. But That's at the time, it really, no, I find that yeah, it really so is, it really is. That, you know, <laughs> but there was a, you know, for, for about 18 months, two years almost, there was a, this was a, a real, um, it, it was a, a very prominent sort of um, set of activities. And, mm. and what, what I found fascinating about this is that th this was a really interesting case where some of the world's specialists in how policymakers use historical analogy, use historical language to help shape things. They, they were really, really keen on developing a history and understanding what happened that allowed the, you know, Al-Qaeda to do what it did on 9-11. And they were very keen on not, I mean, you can see in, the, in most of their work, they, they stay away from, you know, cheap analogizing, saying this is another Korea or this is another Vietnam. They stay away from it. But then in drafting their policy recommendations, and there are 42 policy recommendations that they come up with, they have kind of a policy chapter at the end of what they, you know, the, the, the massive report that they produced. And they kind of just slapped these two right at the very top. So there are 42 in the end, and the top two were dealing with terrorist sanctuaries. And that was partly because they were under pressures, some of it self-imposed, to be policy relevant, right? So while they didn't, they didn't sort of employ cheap analogies, they were too savvy for that sort of thing, they themselves were part of an environment where that language had solidified. I mean, this is around 2003, 2004. So it's about three years worth of, you know, that language about, um, you know, harboring terrorists. And if you harbor terrorists, then you're just as bad. So uh, we'll be coming after you as well. I mean, that had just been hammered home, you know, endlessly. And and we're getting into that period where, you know, the, the, the invasion of Iraq happens in 2003 and then into 2004. And that's exactly when the 9-11 Commission is happening. So I think in a sense, they were sort of victims of context, um, even though they themselves are more aware than most of, you know, the pitfalls of, of using the wrong kinds of, of history or using history, you know, incorrectly, including the language of another time uh, or of another place. And so it was really interesting to see how they themselves had also sort of fallen victim to that. And, and this is, you know, to, just to add to that, not, not to put too fine a, a point on it, but this is also a time when splitting hairs about language was, was a big deal. Finding the right kind of terminology was itself kind of a headline activity. People like Donald Rumsfeld, people like, you know, the, the heads of the 9-11 Commission were very keen on making sure they chose the right terms, right? Was what was going on in Iraq a civil war? Or was it an insurgency or was it something else? And they were having all these semantic discussions, you know, what sort of labels to use. But the one they didn't, for me, which was fascinating, was, you know, whether these, whether, whether talk of sanctuaries and safe havens, though those labels, that's the one thing they didn't question out of all of it. And I thought that was... You know, for for a time, I was wondering. Well, maybe maybe that's for a reason. Maybe it's because it's completely inconsequential, right? Maybe I'm maybe I'm fixating on something that's not there, <laughs> right? And and I had that doubt. But there are enough occasions along the way. There are enough examples of 
individuals being asked, you know, is this state a safe haven or a sanctuary? And they'd stop and they'd pick it apart, right? And it happened two or three times. Rumsfeld did it. I mean, he, he did that with everything, right? I mean, it was part of his sort of modus operandi to pick apart the language that journalists would use when they asked him questions. And But this happened a couple of times on that. It was just enough to convince me that actually there was, there was something going on sort of, you know, be, behind closed doors uh, in terms of thinking about this stuff. Um, so that that's why I basically, you know, kept pulling at those threads and start, instead of just giving up on it. Sure. And, you know, when you hear people, you know, well, politicians, policymakers now using that same kind of language, what are the thoughts that go through your mind when you hear that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, I've always, I've always told people that this is the gift that's keep, that keeps on giving. I mean, you know, before we started recording, um, you, you sort of, you know, raised, raised this point. Um, uh, I think, you know, in a sense, as, as the author of a book on the subject, I think it's great because it'll resonate and it'll keep resonating and maybe people will look to the book for some, some, some you know, uh, to, to have some light sort of shed on this. But, I, you know, I stopped the book in, in, in 2000, the book covers up to 2000, late 2008, early 2009. And then, you know, th- things kept happening afterwards that, you know, it sort of, I had, I had myself wondering whether I should, you know, extend the book even further. And some of the, some of the reviewers, um, the blind reviewers <clears throat> of the manuscript are like, we need to see what happens after, right? This book needs more chapters and there needs to be a counterpart book that looks beyond this. You know, what happens when we really start looking at AFPAC? What happens when, when ISIS comes along and actually you're now looking at something a lot more like a classic situation where an insurgent group has territorial control over a state, right? And that, that's looking a lot more like Cold War era discussions of terrorist sanctuaries and domino theories and the like. And so, so I thought, you know, that, the, that, that was one set of issues. Another was, I, I think, some of the back and forth between the domestic and foreign uh, influences on this. So, you know, when, when Donald Trump came, came to power, you'll, you'll remember in the first year or two, well, for, for his entire presidency, but really for in the first year or two, he started shining lights on, on sort of, you know, sanctuary cities in the U.S. And sanctuary cities are, you know, a direct outgrowth of what began in the 80s with the sanctuary movement, what began with, you know, parishes along the border with Mexico providing sanctuary to, to, to refugees and defying federal, federal authority to, you know, cease and desist. Um, those expanded to the point where, you know, cities were then providing sanctuary. And that's something that began, you know, in the eighties. And so, so this, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting. Now, now you've seen this sort of about face instead of looking abroad, um, um, you know, that that's still going on, you know, policymakers are still looking to Afghanistan and Iraq at that time, but, but it's a bit more subdued and, and the focus partly because the president is, is directing attention that way, um, to, to, you know, domestic sanctuary cities. Um, and then, and then, you know, just in the last month, things have reversed. The, the, the gaze has been inverted again. Uh, and, and we've been forced to look back at Afghanistan again. Um, and some of that, some of that same talk, um, or, or some of that talk about, you know, is Afghanistan going to become a safe haven again is sounding an awful lot like what people were talking about 20 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and like you said, it's, this is these are concepts which are so embedded i guess that they, they won't go away but also they will continue to influence our thinking in terms of how we we deal with these situations um but it's also reminiscent and you mentioned kind of the anxiety as well in in within the book at, at the time around the post 9-11 period the immediate post 9-11 period 
when uh, there was that sort of fear that there'd be other similar types of attacks coming and you know this had to be really dealt with uh, straight away and it, it feels like some of the sort of discourse at the moment starts to become a little reminiscent of that um, and I wonder if that sort of does then continue to shape policy making and responses to these situations and and also then the flow down, you know, as you, uh, you as we started off talking about, you know, for those people who are sitting in those analyst roles and dealing with intelligence requirements, um, how much of that kind of political language really comes through uh, all the way down the, the sort of chain of command, really, and, and shapes what they're doing day to day and the work that they're doing, the information they're looking for, how they analyze it, the reports they produce. Um, I think that's one of those. Yeah, that was, that was one of the, the things that sort of stayed. The thought that stayed in my mind as I was reading the book, and um, I, I kept coming back as well in my mind to the your, your the anecdote you started off with, talking about um, Bosnia and this concept that countries were perhaps deporting people to to Bosnia who they thought would were involved in terrorist activities, etc. And then turning around and saying, "Hang on, that now makes this country." potentially a terrorist safe haven yeah um, so maybe you can unpack that a little bit as well and sort of it'd be good to get your thoughts on and your take on that for, for people who are listening i think yeah i guess i mean i i, I think we were both thinking along the same lines because i've just been jotting down some notes um about about you know the the fact that a lot of this talk of sanctuary is not just at a political level it's not not just at a sort of presidential level it's 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 also an operationalized uh set of terms of references, right? And, and that operationalization creates all sorts of variants. Um, and and um, what, I, what I was really interested in, in asking, my main question was, you know, if there is some sort of discourse uh, or talk of sanctuary, and it's, it's something that we can observe over time, and it's something that's actually there, what is it? What does it actually look like? And what it, where is it coming from? I was less interested. I was still very interested in understanding how terrorists use sanctuary, and that was that was the big research sort of question after after 9/11, right? How how and why do they use sanctuary? And and for the longest time, I've sort of you know sort of split between looking at how armed groups use this stuff, and then also looking at well, how do we understand it that way, and and who frames it that way? And eventually, I had to sort of split, you know, the the first part off and just focus on on the framing of it. Um, you know the, the the part that leads to those kind of intelligence requirements, and I think in in trying to understand where this stuff comes from and tracing the the observable sort of behaviors of policymakers and people putting together speeches and documents and not just not just you know not just speeches and and sort of you know official sort of reviews and assessments and estimates, but also the 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 manuals that get produced and, and sort of the operational manuals, the field manuals, the part, you know, those kind of documents that sit on a shelf ready for the next generation to pick them up. You know, the point of reference that makes the stuff available for subsequent users. I was really interested in that practical sort of embeddedness of those lessons. And, and um, so that's what I was looking for in, in these, you know, the, the, the case study chapters that I look at is when, when the president decides he's got an issue to deal with, and the and the speech makers, you know, get involved. What's the book they pull off the shelf to help them think through this, right? And and there was some pretty defined stuff that that we were able to identify. Um, and how does that translate then in terms of offices being tasked with, you know, researching this, money being allocated, you know, labels putting being put on office doors that are, you know, 
um, a, a committee in the National Security Council being, you know, labeled as the safe haven working group. You know, what's what's the how is this stuff operationalized? How is it made real and not just, you know, verbiage coming out of a president's mouth? Um, and then what does that mean sort of further downstream once you get to deploying troops or or other kinds of resources being allocated to that? And so there's quite a bit of material that's 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 there, right? Um, yeah, and, and even though it's there sitting on the shelf, that doesn't mean it's not subject to being, you know, manipulated or abused. And you see that as well. And there's a great case of a speech that was given in 2002 or 2003 where, you know, those I think it was a, a DOD press briefing of some kind. And somebody asked that question about is, is you know, Iran a, a terrorist sanctuary or is Iraq a terrorist sanctuary? And, um, and, and, and Rumsfeld saying basically, you know, Picking it apart a little bit, saying we'll get back to you. And then a week later, there's a press brief given by an unnamed DIA representative. And what they've done is they went back to this is remember this is 2002 2003, just in the lead up to the second Gulf War, where they've taken the the uh, the published lessons of the first Gulf War from 10 years before, and they've basically slapped on the terminology that was developed after 9/11 10 years later. Um, to, to brand and, and label all these different kinds of operational be, um, behaviors in, in Iraq by Saddam Hussein's forces as different kinds of sanctuary denying or sanctuary seeking behavior. And I thought this is this is such a brilliant example of sort of taking history and then using it to sell a new agenda. Is and, the danger there, though, that you know, viewing this type of problem through that frame that analysts, counterterrorism, intelligence agencies, et cetera, national security practitioners, start to look for or start to see sanctuaries and safe havens where before there weren't any and they may not be but they you know there's this fear that they could turn into or you know like like you mentioned in the book that suddenly bosnia becomes a potential sanctuary or safe haven where before perhaps it wasn't seen in that light does that create its own kind of problems that actually help perpetuate this situation rather than helping solve it yeah, well, I mean, there's there's definitely a, a matter of priorities that comes into play, but would those priorities be there if they were called something else? Definitely, um, there's definitely a matter of priorities, and 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 you know, my 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 experience in the Balkans was an interesting way to for me to make sense of some of what I was looking at, but um, I didn't, you know, I don't I don't look at the Balkans too much after that. I, I tended to look at how how you know Afghanistan and Iraq were being framed. Um, in terms of you know the resources that are allocated, um, you know, and, and the priorities that are that are that are that accrue to, to different sort of parts of the world and for different reasons, um, are, are definitely part of this. But I, I think, you know, the the lo- like I said before, the, the logic was already there, um, and and you could sort of you know pick pick a term out of that out of, out of your hat and basically apply that. The logic was still the same, and that's where you get this these these sort of variations. In terms of how how the how the you know sanctuary talk is used in in different cases, what's interesting what was interesting to me is some of the assumptions about the talk after 9/11, really really after the invasion of Iraq, when you know that the talk of insurgency and counterinsurgency and past lessons of those really came into play, and that was there's kind of an assumed association between terrorist and guerrilla sanctuaries and insurgency and counterinsurgency, and I thought that was really interesting because if you look at the classics, right, um, there's there's there are a few that use that terminology, but most don't. They're talking about terrain, they're talking about geography, yeah. they're talking about logistics, right? And and so it, it's pretty complicated. And and one of the key things about this kind of language is it provides a really simplifying handle 
um, to 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 invoke all of these kinds of issues. Um, but then, you know, again, the problem is is that over time, that simplifying handle becomes the point, right? And rather than you know, kind of an umbrella for what people for all the other things that people need to be taking into consideration. So the caveat I would add to that is 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 that people working on those issues know that they're not, you know, they're not they're not gulled into thinking that. Um, you know, the, the issues are as simple as policymakers make, make them out to be. The whole point, you know, when you're operationalizing this stuff is making it apply to the range of the, the full range of issues that, that might be on your on your desk at any given time. It's really interesting. And, and Mike, I realize we're up against time, so I kind of wanted to bring this maybe to a, to a conclusion. But I wanted to, before we finish, ask you about a project that I was working with you briefly, very, very briefly on, um, but which I know you led for a, for a time and... Um, uh, that was the Taliban Sources Project, and maybe just to get you to describe that a little bit, and especially now with the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan and and you know really coming back to the forefront of international attention. Looking back on that project now, is it something that people would be would find useful to under, help them understand the Taliban better and, and to review? And is it accessible for people? Yeah, definitely. I mean, going from the book to the TSB, the common point I, I suppose is that. I, I would say the book is is very document centric, right? This isn't like a, a Bob Woodward sort of interview based book. Um, um, it, it's very much built around case studies of you know document collections. And so I guess leaping from that, leaping from that to the TSP, the Taliban Sources Project was not. It was a project I didn't start the TSP. The, the TSP was actually begun by two well known uh, scholars of of Afghanistan, Alex Strick and uh, and Felix Kuhn, and they had collected. You know, as researchers sitting in Kandahar between 2006 and 2011, they had collected a lot of the, you know, what we would consider, I guess, gray literature and, and just open source stuff, you know, stacks of newspapers, stacks of magazines, stacks of, you know, items, items that had been published by the Taliban during their time in government that were just kind of, you know, available in the environment. It's kind of the... It's kind of the what I what I like to think of as the the tourist junk uh, approach to things. It's inherently worthless, right, and 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 cheap, but you can only get it in certain places, right? And mm-hmm. so so yeah. if you're if you're on the ground, so to speak, you can get access to all sorts of publications and materials that you, that that researchers really privilege, right? That that are really important for understanding. Yeah, um, it has value time. through its accumulation too, right? I mean, in, yeah. in, in each one of those. In, newspapers or items of documentation, et cetera, none of those on their own right would be that interesting, but it's the fact that there's yeah. this huge collection. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 uh, and so they, they had collected, you know, quite a, quite a I mean, a, a few, um, uh, boxes worth of, you know, travel, travel trunk trunks worth of documentation. So ba- basically we found the money, uh, to independently, um, digitize all this material. The, the challenge was that, you know, you had all this, physical documentation that could be read and that could, you know, really enrich an understanding of, of Afghanistan and the Taliban. And that's what Alex and Felix really did with their work. But, you know, it was it was in isolation. It, it wasn't accessible. And so that's, you know, for anybody dealing with open source, uh, for, for your audience, the accessibility of information is key. So how do you make this stuff accessible, right? It's inaccessible because of its location. It's inaccessible because of the media that it's in. It's, it's paper. It's not, you know, digitized. Um, a lot of it is inaccessible to non-language uh, specialists who don't have, you know, Pashto or Dari or there was a small trench of Arabic in there. So making it accessible was was a key thing that we're doing. And it was a very sort of fundamental, unsexy, but very basic kind of project to just scan all of this stuff, digitize it, translate 
key elements of it. And that's what we did over a two-year period. Uh, the team um, scanned and digitized just over 50,000 pages of material. Um, and as, as projects like this go, that's not huge. It's, it's a pretty decent amount, but it's not huge. Well, I, I remember you and I scratching our heads about how can we speed up the scanning? <laughs> well, indeed. So I mean, you know, the challenges, the challenges you have to deal with, I mean, there, there are all sorts of considerations that come into play. So one of the decisions we made was to, even though this, most of this was worth, worthless newsprint, it was still a physical artifact that was of Afghanistan, therefore should remain Afghan in Afghanistan. So we stayed true to UNESCO standards for, for cultural heritage. Um, there was a practical reason for that too, in that you know if we had tried to physically remove it from Afghanistan, it would probably would have been confiscated and destroyed. Um, and so, and we were trying to preserve this for you know for historical value. Um, and so, uh, so, so we managed to do that, and we translated just under two million words worth. And to answer your question about is it accessible and 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 can it be used, the answer is a most definite yes. So the the aim of the project was to make it available for researchers. There is a, a copy of it that currently sits uh, on University of Oslo servers alongside the Jihadi document repository, which some of your readers might be familiar with. Uh, it was a project of Thomas Heghammer and Stenerson and a few others who are you know, some of the world's leading specialists on, um, on jihadi studies, I guess is the, is the way to frame it. And so there's a Taliban sources repository next to that. Um, the other place where it will be sitting is at, at King's College London. So, so one of the things that I've done as kind of an outgrowth of all of this is to set up a conflict records unit. Um, and and uh, part of that, um, part of its remit is to be able to host and develop these kind of record sets. So digital versions are available in those two places. And of course, there's a, it wouldn't be fair to mention this without, without mentioning uh, Alex and Felix's book. They, they published a reader with, with selected items from that. So, so what, what I find interesting about that is, you know, the, the interest in getting right at the primary sources that are hard to get at, but that are essential. And there's a real, there's a real interest amongst political scientists, among civil war specialists in particular, human rights uh, specialists as well, in getting to these primary sources that are generated by parties to conflict, whether it's, you know, perpetrators or, or, or victims or bystanders or survivors or what have you. Um, you know, among political scientists, it's a, it, there's a real interest in this. Um, and, and, and civil society has really developed in this direction as well over the last 10 years with organizations that you'll be very familiar with, like, like Bellingcat or um, I think indeed Forensic Architecture is another one, Mnemonic yeah. in Syria and Iraq, where, you know, you're collecting evidence on the ground. And what's interesting to me um, is how that has, you know, been brought back in and so now you have these these major un mechanisms one for syria one for myanmar one for uh investigating daesh where they're very interested in you know battlefield evidence and battlefield information including documentary evidence right and so there's been a real push over the last few years to sort of refocus on that and that in turn that that in turn has its own you know if you if you again want to you know pull at the historical threads you know, there's uh, document exploitation is, is, is a well-defined part, especially in the U.S., also in the U.K., uh, part of military intelligence, right? How do you yep. how do you secure, how do you identify, how do you collect, how do you preserve, how do you make it accessible um, in a forward predictive thinking, you know, way for, for intelligence purposes? And then you also have this retrospective preserving the evidence, you know, for, for, for judicial purposes and also for... Uh, for historical purposes and, and broader sort of scholarly research. So it's a really interesting landscape for doing this kind of work now. That's fascinating. And I think it's really useful to know where those are um, 
hopefully people who are listening will be able to take advantage of those resources and help them uh, in any research they might be conducting on this. And also, as you said, you know, with Alex and Felix's book uh, to, to maybe review that, this would be an opportune time to look back on it and, and help understand, I think, what we might be seeing in Afghanistan um, in the in the future uh, or in the near, near future, at least. So, yeah, that was really interesting. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And um, yes. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. It's been fascinating to talk to you about your book and and all of the experiences that you've had that have led to that point of of conducting all of the research and really asking those fundamental questions, which I think not enough people working in intelligence, not enough analysts stop sometimes to consider those things. And it's it's great that you've done that. So for anyone who's interested, they can find that book right now in Streets. hardback. Yeah, Streets Without Joy. And um, from Hearst and from uh, Oxford University Press in the US. And I'll thoroughly recommend it. Thanks again, Mike. It's been really interesting and um, great to catch up. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from Jane's, covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's Threat Intelligence Solutions. Find out more at janes.com threat.